Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impressive filmography of Ivan Drago himself, Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going back to 1993 and taking a look at the action thriller Army of One, also known as Joshua Tree. This was Lundgren's follow-up picture to 1992's Universal Soldier and features everything that would make a fan of the action genre salivate. A tough anti-hero, gory shootouts, hot women, and fast cars. The plot is fairly simple. Lundgren plays Anthony Wilman Santee, an escaped convict who leads police on a turbocharged chase through the California desert as he attempts to clear his name and take vengeance on the crooked cops who set him up. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and with me today to discuss this film is my action movie blood brother, David J. Moore, author of the extremely impressive compendium, The Good, the Tough, and the Deadly, the ultimate action movie encyclopedia. David, it's a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, no, and, and before we before we dive into this film, I just got to say, um, for anyone out there who is listening, I, I have actually quite a few questions about this book, but the book, The Good, the Tough, and the Deadly, this thing is beautiful, and it, it's actually become uh, my regular go-to uh, piece of literature that I have by my bedside that I read before uh, bed each night. I mean, I, I'm actually, I'm glancing through it right now. This thing is beautiful. How long did it take you to put this entire thing together? Uh, I would say like two and a half years. I mean, I, I, uh, had written a previous book called World Gone Wild, a survivor's guide to post-apocalyptic movies, um, which is all about end of the world films. And I spent like eight years writing that one because I didn't really know what the heck I was doing until I finally realized I was doing something. Um, and it was during the process of that book when I was watching stuff like Cyborg with Jean-Claude Van Damme and Future Kick with Don the Dragon Wilson and The Terminator with Arnold Schwarzenegger and, you know, Hell Comes to Frogtown with Roddy Roddy Piper, that I realized that there was another, like, uh, book out there that, cause I could, I could feel the thread. You know, there was a, there was a common denominator there that I felt like, um, should be explored. And I, I'd always wanted to explore that in a really big way. Um, and that is writing a book about, um, the men and women who came from martial arts or sports or act, you know, um, places where phys their physicality played a major role in their, in their careers before they became actors. And that I dubbed that term, you know, action star, you know, like the real action stars. Um, and so it was a very quick and easy transition now that I knew how to, um, write a book like this, you know, big hardcover compendium, very comprehensive. Um, so I just literally segued right into the good, the tough and the deadly and just completely blew the genre up as, as best as I could. Um, and it was, it was a lot of fun. So I did it very quickly. Um, and I was on a deadline. So I, there was no, you know, no downtime. It was, it was exhaustive and exhausting. Um, and by the time I was done with it, I, I completely burned myself out. <laughs> well, I can, I can only imagine. I mean, cause you cover, you cover a lot of stuff in here that I think has been forgotten by, <laughs> by plenty of people. Um, but yeah, I can only imagine in putting this, in putting this book together, what was it like? I mean, just each night, were you watching two to three B movie classics? And when your wife came into the room, were you just pretty much like, Oh, I'm, I'm doing research, sweetie. So, uh, please let me be. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, um, we had, uh, just had a baby, um, in between my book, World Gone Wild and The Good, the Tough and the Deadly. It was right around that time, like right when my World Gone Wild book came out, we, we had a child. So I literally did not, um, sleep, uh, for, you know, like eight, nine months after, you know, during that 
period where, you know, we had a baby, um, which actually helped tremendously in me getting work done because I was up all the time uh, in the middle of the night. Uh, I was watching at least two or three of these movies a day, plus episodes of, you know, of Renegade with Lorenzo Lamas and Walker, Texas Ranger with Chuck Norris and all of these, these, you know, shows that, you know, you might not even realize were in existence like Cobra with Michael Dudikoff. Um, there were tons and tons of things that I, that, that I was watching every single day and night. And my little boy kind of, you know, his, his first, flickering images of of celluloid were were from you know like american ninja and enter the dragon and and you know all of these crazy movies these kickboxing movies with uh don wilson and cynthia rothrock so it was a night and day thing for me um and you know my my wife knew who she married uh you know i mean i got these movie posters on my wall already she she knows and um that's kind of our our running joke is that you know we just had another baby and I'm working on another one of these types of books. So, um, in a different genre. So it's like, you know, each, each of our kids will have a, you know, a different perspective on, on their early years, you know, of, of growing up and seeing all these crazy movies that I, that I, you know, forced myself to watch. <laughs> well, it's, it's so good to, uh, to get to speak to, like you said, another action movie, blood brother. And when, when we are finished, I will have to, uh, uh, send you a picture of my garage because my garage is pretty much a shrine to these to these B movie classics of, of yesterday. But the other thing that I will say about the about the book, I mean I love this book on so many different levels. But the other thing that I that I really appreciate about it is that you pay so much attention to the films of PM Entertainment. And I feel like PM Entertainment is one of those production companies that, you know, has just been completely forgotten that isn't even really mentioned at all by anyone anymore. And if you look at the stuff that came out of PM Entertainment, I feel a lot of the stuff that they did looks so much better than what is getting produced today. So I got to give you major props for not only not only mentioning those films, but taking the time to you know bring them back into the into the public conscious. Well, yeah, I wish I could have covered more PM Entertainment movies. Um, you know, there's lots of stuff that I didn't cover because I, they didn't star uh, people that I would consider action stars in, in, you know, by the definition that I mandated in this book. Um, tons and tons and tons of material that they, that they produced over a fairly short amount of time. There, PM Entertainment is still in existence in a weird way. There's kind of an offshoot like, uh, Millennium Entertainment right now is an offshoot of Canon from the, you know, eighties and nineties. Um, so there, there is like a thread. If you follow it, you can still see that, um, uh, Joseph Mirai and those guys, they're still producing movies, but they're, you know, they're nothing like what they used to do one right after another. I mean, they would shoot those movies for like $20,000, um, over like four days or something. I mean, it was ridiculous. Some of the stuff that they were doing on these budgets, but they were shooting on film, which is part of the reason why they look better. Um, you know, and it, they, they, they were just, so accomplished these these filmmakers these um exploitationers you know uh you know okay you could say the same thing about canon you know yeah yeah well and the other question that i will ask you real quick regarding the book is that i noticed uh you know on first glance through it i was going through it and i was thinking to myself okay why isn't why why aren't the diehard films in, in this book or why isn't why aren't the lethal weapon films at least lethal weapon one two or three because yeah. to many those would be considered like pinnacles of the action genre. But, sure. but if I understand you correctly, the your definition in the book of what is an action star, I guess Bruce Willis and Mel Gibson really don't fit that mold per se. Is that right? Yeah, you know, that's I okay. So when I when I was starting this book, um, you know, I had this broad idea of what I wanted to do. And I already kind of mentioned it a little bit. I wanted to cover um, you know, these these types of guys, you know, the Lorenzo Lamas guys, the David Bradley, Michael Dudikoffs, um, you know, uh Don the Dragon Wilson, Cynthia Rothrock, Jerry Trimble, all of these guys that that had um one movie right after another that were all martial arts kind of related um wrestling kind of related um but it, i had to i had to 
give myself rules. If I didn't have rules, this book would be ridiculous. It would be out of control. Um, and I had to do the same thing with my first book, World Gone Wild. I had to have specific parameters of what is an end of the world movie. Otherwise, you know, everything and in, in, would be in there, you know, Armageddon and, and, you know, uh, you know, stupid things that you wouldn't, you, you would assume are post-apocalyptic, but aren't actually post-apocalyptic. Um, and same thing with, with this book. Um, if I was gonna, I wanted to put Bruce Willis in there. I wanted to put Mel Gibson in there. I wanted to have Kurt Russell in there, but, I realized that if I did that, then I'd have to throw Clint Eastwood in there and John Wayne. And then as soon as you do that, you're just opening up a whole huge can of worms that, you know, you just can't control it anymore. So you have to have a rule. You have to have a rule. And my rule was that you have to, these actors and actresses, they have to have a past, um, in, a an avenue where they either have martial arts skills like their black belts and what other whatever um uh uh type of martial art that they're in uh or they're you know professional swimmers or professional uh gymnast or uh, you know what you know what I'm talking about athletes football yeah. players wrestlers so on and so forth um and it, it actually made my job much easier a little heartbreaking in some instances but um you know I got major criticism when the book came out um I got ripped apart uh, because people were, were angry that, you know, Patrick Swayze wasn't in there and, or, you know, like, uh, I am legend with, with, uh, Will Smith. You know, why isn't Will Smith in this book? Why, why aren't the Transformers movies in this book? Well, it's because, you know, there's no action stars in those, in those movies. Um, so, uh, you know, it was, it, it actually became fairly easy to define it once I created a very clear definition. Well, and it sounds like you and I obviously grew up on the same films and appreciated the same films and the same stars. And it's funny because I actually, a couple of years ago, heard a stand-up comedian talking about how the, the real action stars are the, the Arnold Schwarzeneggers and the Dolph Lundgrens and the fact that nowadays we have the likes of Justin Timberlake trying to throw his hat into the action realm. And it's like, no, that that doesn't, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> that just, that doesn't right. work. So. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it, it it started happening, you know, during like the early 2000s. There was a there was a very noticeable shift when guys like Ben Affleck and Keanu Reeves were given the sorts of roles that guys like, you know, Jeff Speakman and Steven Seagal used to do. And it became pretty clear that what we were seeing was studios didn't want to hire guys that were a little rough around the edges in the acting department, but could do the physical stuff. They were hiring actors who could be trained to do these physical things that, that we're used to seeing real martial artists do. And, you know, you know, look at, look at, uh, Liam Neeson and, uh, you know, these guys are, you know, they're, they're doing these, these action type movies. And most people would assume that you'd consider those action stars, but they're just actors. You know, they learn their stuff right there on the set in pre-production. And, you know, when they go home, they're, you know, just a guy again. They're not practicing their discipline anymore. And, um, so yeah, that's, you know, I, I try to honor the guys who are, are the real deal in this book. Well, now with regard to, you know, obviously this is the, this is the Dolph Lundgren podcast because he's always been my favorite of all these action stars ever since I was a little kid. Hence, you know, me creating this project. But I'm curious, where, where would you rank Mr. Lundgren in terms of your favorite action stars? If you had like a, a, a hierarchy, excuse me, who are always your favorites and where would, where would Lundgren fall in that, uh, in that placement? That's interesting. Um, so when I was a kid, I did not like Dolph Lundgren at all. Um, I found him to be, I mean, the first time we ever saw Dolph Lundgren was as a villain. And that always stuck with me as a kid. I didn't like him because the first time I saw, I saw Rocky Four in the theater. Um, and it, it made an impression on me. I didn't like Dolph Lundgren. I love Stallone and I, I wanted Stallone to, to beat Dolph Lundgren and I never wanted to see Dolph Lundgren again. You know, I was like, okay, that guy's done for me. I never want to see him again. And then he comes out with He-Man. And I was a huge He-Man guy. Um, and I always kind of, my image of, of He-Man was not Dolph Lundgren. You know, but, and, in retrospect, I think he was a really good choice as He-Man. But, um, it, 
that was tainted for me, you know, knowing that he came as a villain, you know, like my, my favorite toy is a bad guy. You know, I don't like that. Um, and so it took a long time, actually. Um, I was, gosh, I mean, even, even, uh, we'll say this is, this is actually a really good question because I did not really get into Dolph Lundgren movies wholeheartedly until, gosh, um, I mean, I, I remember seeing Men of War and I liked it a lot, but I still didn't like Dolph. Um, and I remember seeing The Punisher. And I didn't like Dolph in that because I thought that, uh, I was such a big fan of the Punisher. I didn't like that, that his skull wasn't on the shirt. So again, it was kind of a tainted view of Dolph Lundgren. I was like, ah, they didn't get the Punisher right. Um, and it, it, it was a complicated relationship in my mind with Dolph Lundgren. It took a long time. Even again, Universal Soldier, he was cast as the bad guy again. And so I was like, gosh, when am I ever going to like this guy? Um, and it took a long time. I remember I, I was avoiding Dolph for many years and, but I knew someday, I knew someday I would like him. I just felt it in my gut. Um, and I think it was, uh, the, the Russian specialist was the one that really changed everything for me. Um, because up to that point, he had stopped making these theatrical films, um, and his movies were going straight to video. And I always kind of thought, oh, this guy is not even a movie star. He's just a direct to video star. Um, and, uh, you know, and I remember seeing Johnny Mnemonic in the theater. And he was a bad guy in that too. So I was like, oh, I can't stand this guy. And, but it was the Russian specialist. When I watched that, when that came out on DVD, I was like, okay, all right, I'm going to give this a try. And, um, you know, he looked more mature and it looked like he'd kind of worn into his, his face. You know, he was always that Aryan god looking guy, you know, and I liked in the Russian specialist how he was this weathered man. You know, he wasn't just some, you know, fitness star, you know, the, the Dolph's maximum potential, the workout video guy, you know, it was, it was this, this weathered Charles Bronson type of man. And, um, that movie just completely blew me up. I was like, wow, I love this movie. And the fact that he directed it was very, very interesting to me. And so that's the point that I became an instant Dolph Lundgren fan. And I got every single movie that, that he ever did um, before that. And I watched all of them. And then every movie he did after that, I bought them like on the day of, of release. You know, I would buy every single one. And at that point, that's when I started. I loved Dolph Lundgren at that point. I was like, I love this movie. I love that movie. Um, I mean, after, after, um, the Russian specialist, he did Missionary Man. He did Direct Contact, Diamond Dogs, Command Performance, you know, and these were movies that were all almost consistently good. You know, they were like, wow, this is, he's great. You know, what, what was my problem all these years? Um, and he made a lot of mediocre movies, but, um, you know, they all do. They all, they all make crummy movies once in a while. So. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, in the end, um, I think what, what a lot of people need to realize, regardless if it's whether, if it's Dolph Lundgren or if it's Van Damme or whoever it may be, you know, these, these are working guys, you know what I mean? And they are there to, you know, work and to collect a paycheck, just like you and I do. So every movie that they do cannot be a Terminator or a Russian specialist or, you know, whatever it may be. They're going to have to do a movie here and there, um, you know, to pay the bills. And uh, when I say that, I'm referring to uh, Puncture Wounds and Blood of Redemption and some of the yeah. <laughs> and some of the films that, that Lundgren has done that maybe are not the greatest. But, you know, the film that we are talking about today, uh, Army of One or Joshua Tree, depending on how you want to refer to it. I'm curious, yeah. you know, I, I, I guess I kind of picked this film for us to discuss today, but I'm curious, what is your, what is, before we get into it, what is your experience with the film? Do you remember when you first saw it and what did you think of it then compared to what you, what do yeah. you think of it then compared to now? Well, you know, that was one of the early ones that I saw. I, I saw that one on VHS. I remember I, I bought, like a previously viewed VHS tape of that movie. That was amongst the handful of movies of, uh, that Dolph starred in that I had seen 
prior to the Russia's, Russian specialist. I mean, I can tell you exactly which movies I'd seen of his up to that point. Um, you know, I'd seen uh, Red Scorpion. I'd seen Masters of the Universe. Um, I remember seeing Showdown in Little Tokyo when I was a kid. Uh, I was like 11 when I saw that. I was a little young to see that one. That one's pretty nasty. Uh, um, let's see. What else did I... I'd seen Men of War, I think. Um Hidden Assassin, I remember seeing at one point, and Johnny Mnemonic, and then I hadn't seen much of the other ones, but I remember seeing Army of One on VHS, and I saw the unrated version, um, and because there were there were two versions, so there was you know the R-rated version on tape, and then there was the unrated version, which was like literally less than a minute longer. I think it just had. Um, like spliced uh, some extra um, violent scenes, you know, just a couple blood splatters. Um, I thought for some reason that there would be like another minute of sex. You know, I mean, I was at that age where I was like, if it's unrated, it's going to have sex in it, you know? Um, so yeah. I watched that movie. And another thing that a- attracted me to that movie was the fact that Vic Armstrong directed it. Um, and I was well aware of who Vic Armstrong was because he was a very, he's one of the all time great stuntman, uh, stuntmen that the world has ever seen. Um, I mean, he was the guy that did, um, you know, he doubled Harrison Ford for the truck chase and Raiders of the lost Ark, you know, under the truck. And he doubled, um, Christopher Reeve and, and the original Superman movie. Um, and he had doubled James Bond a whole bunch of times, uh, throughout all the other, all the James Bonds that had come up to, you know, that point. Um, so, I mean, the fact that Vic Armstrong had directed that movie and I knew who he was and that, that was attractive. I'm like, Ooh, this is, this movie's going to be, you know, really stunt driven, very stunt oriented and it's going to have great action. So, um, and I remember watching it and thinking it was pretty good. You know, uh, it was, it was like the middle of the road Dolph Lundgren movie, even in retrospect, it's not one of his best and it's not one of his worst. It's kind of in the middle. Um, even, even when I saw it at that point on tape, I thought it was okay. It was pretty good. Um, so yeah, you know, and I still think it's, it's that, you know, I, my, my opinion hasn't really changed, uh, uh, for well, one, you know, and the film, it doesn't, it doesn't try to be anything. It's not, I mean, it's, it's very simple. It's very basic. I mean, this film was made to be, um, you know, very much in the similar vein of those noirish California desert pictures, similar to right. high Sierra. And so I think that is basically it's definitely what it's going for. And it works to that to that extent. It's when you look at it from the, you know, from the offset, you wouldn't expect it to be a Dolph Lundgren picture. I feel like Dolph Lundgren, he does amazing in this role. Don't get me wrong. But this is a role that could be played by a number of different actors. And so the fact that he is in it, it definitely it becomes a Dolph Lundgren picture. But it could I could see, you know, any other actor in in this particular role of uh, of Santee, as he is referred to in the film. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Nicolas Cage, John Travolta, anybody at that that time uh, could have done it. Anybody like that. Maxwell Caulfield, for goodness sake. I mean, it could have been anybody It could have been, um, you know, uh, Jeff Speakman and they could have thrown some hand, you know, some uh, Ken Poe in there or whatever. But, um, yeah, it was and it, it, it was kind of one of those early um, John Woo imitator movies, you know, before every. Everybody was imitating John Woo. It, it, it was imitating John Woo, um, which is kind of interesting, too. Well, and that's one of the that's one of the scenes that I'm looking forward to getting to is dissecting that scene with you. But, um, you know, real quick, one of the things that that definitely stands out with this film is the score. And I don't know if you picked up on that or not, but the score by Joel Goldsmith is a true yeah. selling point of the film. It is. It's this it is. You know, guitar twang that is reminiscent of a Western, because let's face it, the film is a modern day Western because it harkens back to those, like we said, those desert flicks of the 70s there's a little bit of Sergio Leone uh, that that kind of style and influence in there and I I would definitely argue that Lundgren is channeling Clint Eastwood in this role would you agree I wouldn't disagree let me let me put it that way um yeah, I mean, I, that wouldn't be my first choice, but I, I don't see a problem with that at all. That, that totally makes sense. But actually, that score, it's one of those scores that I've looked for 
that was never released on on a soundtrack. You know, I would have loved to buy that soundtrack. And Joel Goldsmith, um, you know, the son of Jerry Goldsmith, he, he's a lot of his scores never made it to uh, you know tape or CD or, or you know LP records. So that's one of those undiscovered soundtrack releases that I would love to get my hands on someday. Yeah, I mean, his score for this is sultry. It's it's actiony. It's um, it's got it really services the film very well. Um, and it's a shame that um, it's never really seen the light of day as far as a you know a CD or an LP or cassette release. You know, it was one of those um releases. Uh, it, you know, this movie didn't even come out in theaters. So um, you know, it, it I'm sure that uh the, the folks in charge just just disregarded the fact that um you know a soundtrack release would have been awesome. Uh, but yeah, no, we're never going to see that unless some specialty label, uh, resurrects it. But I, I kind of doubt it. I don't know if we're ever going to see a soundtrack for this. Well, and I'm so glad that you brought up the fact that it didn't get a theatrical release. And one of the things that I never really understood about Lundgren and his career is the fact that, you know, Universal Soldier had come out in 1992. And with regard to Jean-Claude Van Damme, we talked about this on uh, a couple episodes back. With regard to Jean-Claude Van Damme, Universal Soldier had the intended effect because it really skyrocketed Van Damme's career and got him some bigger budget, more high profile stuff. You know, he became the uh, the go-to guy for Universal Pictures. Lundgren, on the other hand, you know, he is arguably, I'd say, the most memorable thing about Universal Soldier. His villain is just amazing. Yet, unfortunately, his star power really did not lift off after Universal Soldier. This is the film that he did right after Universal Soldier. I mean, he's even spotting, I would say, the, the, the exact same look. I think he, he went right from Universal Soldier to filming this film because he has the same look, the same haircut, the same, you know, his yeah. figure is basically the same. But yeah, this film, unfortunately, was relegated direct to video. I believe it had its premiere on HBO here in the United States, because I do vaguely remember it being premiered on HBO. But I'm curious, why would you say Lundgren did not have the same, um, yeah. the, the, the same effect that, uh, that Van Damme did? Or that, uh, you know, because I know that he had always hoped to rise to the ranks of Stallone and Schwarzenegger. And I would say nowadays, he's definitely a name that definitely belongs alongside those guys. But with regard to where he was at in 93, 94, 95, he was still that direct-to-video guy, whereas opposed to the other guys were above him. Why do you think that was? Well, I think it's very clear. And I actually pointed out in my book, um, in my review to uh, uh, my review of The Punisher, um, it's it really is The Punisher's fault. Um, and it's it's actually very, very, very clear uh, because he was poised, Lundgren was poised to become a Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Chuck Norris, Steven Seagal type guy. Um, but because The Punisher was a New World picture, that was a New World picture film, New World went out of business. And that movie got lost in the shuffle. It did not come out theatrically in the United States. It came out theatrically in the United Kingdom and in other territories. But in the United States of America, The Punisher got lost and it the, it premiered on VHS and Laserdisc. And it was very unfortunate because if that movie had come out theatrically right after Batman, Tim Burton's Batman, as intended, that might have pushed Lundgren over the edge. And even though the movie wasn't as good as Batman, it would have given him a real fighter's chance at becoming a theatrical action star. And that was the catalyst for future direct-to-video movies. Even though Universal Soldier came out theatrically and was a modest hit, I, I believe that executives and producers and theatrical exhibitors like you know the, the Edwards theaters and all those places that were around at the time i believe that they saw lungren as a direct to video star at that time and yeah. in those days when a guy did a direct to video movie you were doomed at that point it was it was kind of a kiss of death at that during that time and yep. and still in, in many ways it is today too um, you know, people people don't regard Nicolas Cage and John Travolta the same way they did back when they were, you know, 
on top. Now they're doing these little, you know, VOD type movies and, you know, they'll, they can never go back. Um, so I believe that's why Army of One, Joshua Tree, was doomed before even Universal Soldier came out. I, I believe that that was already set in motion. And it's a real tragedy, you know, because it, when I met Dolph Lundgren the first time, and when I did an interview with him, I, one of the first things I told him, it was, it was, uh, I was on a press tour for Skin Trade, a movie that he produced and starred in. Yeah. And I, one of the first things I told him was that, um, I said, you know, I still think of you as a theatrical star. You know, you are, you're a, you know, theatrical star. And he's like, thank you. So do I. And, you know, I don't know if anyone had actually ever said that to his face before. Um, and it, it was kind of an honor to say that to him because I, you know, I, I truly do believe that he was destined to be a theatrical star, but it didn't work out for him the way it should have. No, no, that, that, and that, but you know, that's really, that's really humbling and, you know, really cool to hear you say that when you did speak to him, you know, he knows that and he kind of laughs about it. So I think he, he's always had a great sense of humor about his films and especially as he looks back upon some of those films. I mean, you know, the last episode we were talking about Showdown a Little Tokyo, and I can only imagine as he looks back upon, you know, some of the various lines of dialogue in that film and, you know, the outfit that he wears at the end of the film, just <laughs> if he looked, if he looks back upon it nowadays, what, what he would have to say and his, his thoughts about it, I can only imagine he just has a great, a great spirit about it and a great sense of humor, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Dolph worked with some very interesting directors and that's something that, um, not a lot of action stars can actually say, um, you know, Dolph worked with some very interesting filmmakers, especially during that period. I mean, Mark Lester did showdown in little Tokyo and Mark is a very interesting director. You know, he had done commando of course. And I think that's why showdown in little Tokyo was able to get a theatrical release is because it was directed by the guy that did commando and yeah. Warner brothers picked that movie up. And that I remember when Showdown in Little Tokyo came out in theaters, and it was just a small release. It was not like everywhere huge, you know, full page ad in the in the L.A. Times. It was kind of a small half page ad in the L.A. Times. And um, and you know, Dolph also worked with John Woo, and he he's worked with a lot of interesting guys. And um, you know, it's it's kind of cool to to think about that. And you know, at the time, Army of One was the only movie directed by Vic Armstrong for, for like 25 years. Yeah. Now, so, you know, going back to Joshua Tree or Army of One, and actually, before we, <laughs> I know we've kind of gone off on a number of different tangents here, but I'm curious, which title do you like better and which title do you refer to the film more so as? Me personally, when I first saw it on the video store shelves with that with that really cool cover. I, I just want to throw that out there real quick. That, that awesome cover of him standing there in the desert with a sawed off shotgun over his shoulder with that Ferrari in the background. I always just thought it looked so kick-ass, but I've always known it as army of one. So that's always what I've referred to it as. Do you have a preference? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm on the same page there, you know, cause that's how I saw it the first time um, as army of one. And there's nothing wrong with that title other than the fact that Nicolas Cage, you know, used it for a movie a couple of years ago, um, which is, I always find that very annoying when uh, another movie comes out with the exact same title as some other movie. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. And, and you could argue, I guess, that Lundgren really isn't an army of one. He, I mean, he's really pretty much an army of one in the, the warehouse shootout scene. That's pretty much it, which... I know we're going to be getting to, but I will just say it right now. That scene, as cool as it is, I wonder if it even belongs in the film. It almost feels like it belongs in a different film entirely. But that, that's really the only scene where he is, in fact, where this this character of Wellman Santee is, in fact, an army of one. I, I mean, there, I, every other scene, he I, I don't want to say he's getting his ass kicked, but he, you know, he's uh, not the army of one that I guess he is in that in that yeah. scene, you know? Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. And I, I always thought it was very unusual that this car thief is a very proficient shot with, yeah. with you know, two, two handed revolvers. And, you know, I mean, he makes mincemeat out of, you know, an, an army of, you know, a hundred. <laughs> um, 
So I always thought that was kind of weird. Um, that's like my one gripe with the movie. I'm like, how did this guy learn how to shoot so good? I guess the screenwriter, uh, Stephen Pressfield, when he was asked about if there's a hidden meaning, because, you know, the film was originally titled Joshua Tree. They changed it, you know, when it was when it came over here into the States because they didn't want it to be confused with the U2 album, I guess. But when Stephen Pressfield was asked why he titled the film Joshua Tree, he flat out said, you know, no, there's really not a hidden meaning. He just liked the sound of Joshua Tree. He always loved the place itself, thought it was very cinematic. And he always wanted to shoot a movie there. So I think that's pretty cool. But other than that, I, I, I would argue that the title Joshua Tree really doesn't lend a whole lot to the film as well. If if Santee's character was, in fact, named Joshua, then I could I could maybe hmm. go with that. But <laughs> yeah, even that title, even that title, I've never been a huge fan of. But I guess I guess it all goes back to, you know, you are you are more partial to the film or excuse me, to the title with what you originally saw it as, you know? Yeah. Well, I would even say that about director's cuts, too. I've always, you know, if you want to get on a further tangent, I always tend to like the, the version I saw first. And whenever they do, like, extended versions or director's cuts, I always go back to the original, you know, even after I've seen the director's cut. I'm like, I don't like this new cut. So yeah. it just depends. So anyway, sorry. Yeah. No, so, you know, but the film opens, you know, it is a desert setting. And I would say that the the desert in itself is is a character i mean and that's one of the things that i i think is so memorable about the picture i mean the late great jeffrey lewis has a fantastic line that i think sums up the film that could even be a title in itself but he says you know santi is out there and there's six thousand miles of sand and rock finding him is going to be difficult and so the film opens to this this wonderful score that we talked about and we get to see this you know this setting it sets the tone for the film the overall locations we see spiders and lizards and this overall rocky landscape what what do you think about the setting um it's actually quite nice um yeah i i mean it's a great place to set a movie why not and joshua tree is actually very close to where i live um it's just you know down the road a bit on the freeway so um i've camped out in joshua tree before um, so yeah, it's always kind of cool when you, when you see something, you know, someplace that you've been before. Well, and what a great place to film. I mean, talk about, talk about instant production value, you know, for, for a, for a location. I mean, because, and I think, and Vic Armstrong said this as well, one of the, one of the main things that gravitated him to this project was he knew, knew that he could shoot it on a relatively modest budget, but he could utilize all the natural light. And that, that's what this film is. I mean, there's just tons of natural light in the film that they are able to take advantage of. So that's a really cool perk as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Lundgren plays the character of Anthony Wellman Santee, excuse me. He is a car thief working as a trucker. He's running illegal exotic cars. When the film opens, his partner is killed by, or excuse me, his partner played by the, the great Ken Forey of veteran of the, of the horror genre. His partner is killed and an officer is also killed in this pullover and Santee is unfortunately set up for the crime. Eventually, Lundgren is able to escape on his way being transported. One of the other things that I appreciate about this film is Lundgren is an anti-hero, like we talked about earlier, and you know going into the picture, okay, he is your main character, he is going to be the quote-unquote good guy, but the film takes its time a little bit in setting up that he is the good guy because he is... He's pretty much an asshole. I mean, if, if, you, if you say, if you think about it, for the first twenty-five minutes, he's a real prick in, in in these scenes to where you wonder, okay, is he a good guy or is he in fact a bad guy who did these crimes? Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. So that that's one of the things that 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 I always that I always appreciated. But we get these other character actors in the film. I just wanted to throw some of them out there as well. We talked about Jeffrey Lewis, who plays the plays the sheriff of the town. Uh, Nick Chinland. I don't know if you noticed Nick oh, Chinland sure. is yeah, where. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still acting, actually. He was in a Scott Adkins movie recently. Close range, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Close range. Yeah, so I loved seeing Nick Chinland in this role. Uh, Matt Battaglia plays the deputy sheriff who is involved at the, you know, at the very, at the beginning with the, the character Rita Merrick. Um, who interestingly, Matt Vitaglia yeah. went on to take over the role of Luke Devereaux in those horrid, 
Universal Soldier made-for-TV sequels. I don't know if you yeah, saw those or not. Of course I saw them, yeah. So, but yeah, we get, you know, every one of these action movies, it's kind of become a cliche or a trope, but every one of these type of action movies, especially in the 90s, your hero needs an accomplice, and he needs a female accomplice to kind of help him out in his mission along this uh you know, as, as he's on his on his warpath, if you will. So we have the character of Rita Merrick portrayed by Christian Alfonso. She is an off-duty sheriff. Um, she's an actress probably best known for Days of Our Lives. But I'll just I'll say this right now as well. She's hot in this role. I mean, she is she is extremely attractive in this role. Yeah, and it's weird that she didn't really do anything, you know, of, of interest to, to me after this. You know, I mean... She was really good. Uh, she looked great. She did fine. I thought she was a good match for, for Dolph. Um, so, yeah, it's really weird that she did not continue, you know, in, in, a, in a way like Allie, even Allie Walker in, in Universal Soldier. I thought she, you know, she, she did some stuff and she had her own TV show. Uh, but, you know, uh, this Christian Alfonso, I don't know what the heck she did. And it was weird. Like, she just disappeared as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, she, you know, she's, I believe she's still doing the soap opera Days of Our Lives. But yeah, she just disappeared. And what's interesting is I have to wonder, I don't know how she feels about this particular film. Because on the Shout Factory release, which uh, I'm assuming, do you, are you familiar? Do you have the Shout Factory of release of yeah, the film? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the wonderful <clears throat> special feature that is on there, they are, they're able to interview Lundgren. They're able to interview Vic and Andy Armstrong in the making of this film. And I'll... Let me back up. The fact that this film was able to get a special edition disc release from Shout Factory is is amazing in itself. But yeah, Christian wasn't uh, wasn't interviewed, and so I have to wonder if maybe this is a film she prefers to keep in her past that maybe she doesn't want to talk about. I don't know why because she's great in it. I mean, she's a badass, and I guess in those scenes where you know you see her using as as Lundgren refers to it as kung fu in the film, but when you see her being a badass, she's doing a wonderful job. I guess she was trained by Chuck Norris. Oh, in these scenes, I don't know if you knew that. No, I had no idea. Yeah, so yeah, she was trained by Chuck Norris. So. These scenes are amazing. I, one thing I will throw out there real quick. When we first meet her character, she is wearing this black sequined dress, yet they're in the desert and they don't appear to be on a date. And if they, because she's with the, the, uh, the actor Matt Pataglia. So she's in this black sequined dress. I don't know if you picked up on that or not, but I thought that was, I thought that was kind of, kind of humorous. The fact that she is in the desert in this dress for what reason? I don't know. Yeah. Well, they, they gotta, you know, put these ladies in inappropriate attire. Just, you know, just because I've seen lots of these types of movies where you're like, why, why, why is she wearing high heels? Um, or whatever, you know? Um, but I, I wouldn't write her off as not being interested. She, she may not have been approached by Shout Factory. You never know. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, but, and the other thing I will throw out there that I thought was interesting about these opening scenes is when she is at the, she is at the diner with Matt Pataglia, who's also a, a deputy sheriff. Um, he is involved with Rita. Uh, she apparently is breaking up with him because he is, he is too much of a nice guy. And who does, who does Rita end up falling for in the film but Lundgren's escaped convict character, who is the bad boy, which proves once again, I guess nice guys finish last in this oh, one, right? Well, of course. Isn't that the way it goes? <laughs> so, you know, the film moves along so quickly. I mean, you know, it's literally, it's it, it's just action scene after action scene. Lundgren kidnaps, he's escaped, he kidnaps Rita, and Rita figures out eventually that he is, he is actually innocent. He has been set up by a couple of crooked cops one of which is played by George Seagal. His character's name is Lieutenant Severance. That's the that's the uh, detective that has set London up for these crimes. Before we get into George Seagal as this character, I'm just curious, what do you, before I give you my input, what did, what did you think of, of George Seagal as the, as the main heavy? As the I've never liked George Seagal. <laughs> so, okay. yeah, he's annoying. Um, is, yeah, I just, I can't, I don't like him. Uh, he's a little out of place in the movie. Um, they could have done something a lo little bit more interesting in the casting there, but, um, you know, he's all right. I don't know. I just, he's, he doesn't do the movie any favors. He plays the role. I don't know if you would agree with this, but he plays the role almost like as a caricature or a cartoon. Yeah. You know I mean? He almost feels like he doesn't belong in the film with the, with the cigar and the hat. He's just, and he, and he, he just spouts such vile, oh, such vile uh, language in the film that I, 
you know, I, I, I yeah, he, I, I understand that his character is not supposed to be likable, but this is not one of my favorite characters, not one of my favorite villains. He's just, he's just, yeah, he's wrong for the film, yeah, I would absolutely. say. absolutely. I mean, um, in those days, uh, even today, um, people don't regard guys like Seagal with a lot of respect. And somebody like George Seagal, um, he's come from, you know, I, I guess you could put quotations, higher stock or better stock, um, more cultured films or what. You know, whatever. And then, you know, he gets a, an offer to do a Dolph Lundgren movie. And, you know, as far as he's, he's concerned, Dolph Lundgren is that guy in that Rocky movie, you know, and it's like, oh, gosh, I've got to make, you know, whatever. I'm just going to show up and do whatever I want when I when I show up to set. I mean, that's the impression I get in this movie. For him. Yeah, yeah, because I believe he followed up his I believe he followed up this film shortly after maybe a year or two later in the uh, the sitcom Just yeah. Shoot Me. So maybe that's one of the reasons as well why I just entor- entirely do not buy this this character, this villain. It's just it it doesn't click for me. <laughs> so, um, and we've talked about it already. I wanna wanna get to it right now. The warehouse shootout because I would say so much. I I would say most of the production value seems like they put most of that into this warehouse shootout scene. And you said it already. How is Dolph being a car thief able? to be such a crack shot, you know, with a gun. And here he is pulling out, you know, he's he's doing the old John Woo, you know, trope of, you know, having a gun in each hand, blowing away all these bad guys. Fun fact, I guess, you know, this was, this is actually one of the first films to really fully emulate the, the John Woo style. And I guess Vic Armstrong had just seen John Woo's Hard Boiled at a film mm. festival. And he was so enthused by it that he wanted to pay homage to it, especially since, you know, that Hong Kong style was still fairly discreet in Hollywood films. Hard Target was still in production. So Hard Target really hadn't hadn't been out. So I I get the feeling. I don't know if I'm exactly correct on this, but I get the feeling that Vic Armstrong saw the scene and hard boiled, had the script for (laughs) had the script for Army of One and said, yeah, we're going to squeeze in a little hard-boiled uh, nod right in this scene right here. Yeah, no, I would, I would, I would agree with that. Um, and uh, as I recall, Al Leong is in there too. He's in the mix and during that scene. Um, if you're familiar with Al, Al, Al Leong, right? Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. in there. He gets shot up real good. Um, when I when I talked to Al Leong for the book, um, he doesn't even remember being in the movie. I'm like, yeah, you're in the movie. What did you think about you know Army of One? He's like, yeah, I don't remember that at all. And I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> no, oh, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> he just basically wrote it off. He's like, I don't remember that. If I was, if I was in that movie, it was for a day. And I was like, okay, well, there you go. Well, well, you know, the, the warehouse shootout scene is extremely impressive. I mean, I, I will give it that. I mean, all the squibs that they're using on, on the actors are awesome. I mean, it, it, it is brutal. It is gory. Um, yeah, so I, I do love that scene. I do appreciate it for what it is. But yeah, it's, as cool as it as it is, I, I do I will have to say I do feel like it belongs almost in a different in a different film because it doesn't really gel with everything that is <laughs> that, that has gone on previously yeah. in the film. But without it, it wouldn't be the movie that we like. You know, it, it just it's a part of that movie, and I I totally understand where you're coming from. But um, it kind of it gives the movie a little bit you know of its own distinction. You know, it's. It's a product of its time in a way. So, um, but yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, I know where you're coming. From. Well, and without it, I, I would say that it wouldn't, it wouldn't really be a full on Dolph Lundgren yeah, picture absolutely. without absolutely. that scene. You know, I mean, you need to see him being a badass. So, and yeah, it, it is cool. I mean, just the way he is sliding down the ramps with a gun in each hand. I mean, it is a really cool scene. But shortly after this scene, we get, that this is where the film pretty much becomes a chase through the desert. And we get these super fast exotic cars, these wonderful aerial shots, you know, showing these cars careening up and down the mountains, really showing that landscape. What is your take on the, the inclusion of these exotic Ford cars? In the oh, film? dude. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was, that's his character. You know, that's the dude's character. That's Santee. He's a, he's a car thief. So, um, you know, it's like the fast and the furious before there was such a thing. Um, it, it's, it's really cool. You know, I, I love the cars. Yeah, it, it look, they look really cool. And again, this, this film was filmed on a modest budget. And so you really can't tell because these shots, I mean, here, Vic Armstrong, 
He's a veteran of the genre. He knows what he is doing. And so, yeah, these scenes are, just look so cool. They look so much bigger budget than they really are. And so you do have to appreciate it, you know, from that angle. But, yeah, I just love the, the aerial shots of, of these cars just zipping up and down the mountains in this, in this you know, this desert landscape. Yeah, it looks I agree. great. Nowadays, they would just use a couple of drones. You know, they wouldn't use helicopters. But I, I believe there is a difference. You know, drones don't move like helicopters. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, yeah, today it would be a totally different thing. It would look totally different. And the one thing it would, let, let's face it, one of the other memorable scenes about this film that, like I said, I know we're going all over the place and I want to respect your time and all as well, but the, I don't know if you would call it a love scene or not, but the scene in the desert between Santee and Rita, the Christian yeah. Alfonso character, uh, <laughs> Well, what is like your take I told you, scene? I rented. I, re I didn't rent it. I bought the, the a previously viewed VHS of the film, and it was the unrated version. And I thought I was going to get, you know, to see her boobs or something. Um, and so I was always a little disappointed in the fact that there was no nudity in the, in that scene. Um, but actually, in retrospect, yeah. I'm kind of glad they didn't do that because it would have cheapened the movie, and it would have, you know, it just I don't know that that kind of stuff. It doesn't age right, you know. It's just like ah. Um, but I, I like that they handled that scene the way it was. I mean, it, it was like, had they, the, the distributor told them you have to have a sex scene and put it in there, make it work, you know? Well, and I guess the scene, I guess the scene earlier in the film when they're in the hotel room and she is changing and gets in the shower, I guess those scenes were done by a body double. So that is of course not, so not there Christian you go. Alfonso. I mean, they, they, that kind of stuff was written into contracts back then. You had to have a requisite amount of sexuality or nudity to sell it to foreign markets. And it's just, eh, you know, action movies were like that. Every Don the Dragon Wilson movie has nudity in it. Every, almost during that time, it seemed like every movie Jean-Claude Van Damme showed his butt in a movie, you know, and it was just like, you have to yeah. have that <laughs> in there. It's just written in the, in the contract or, or, you know, the paperwork. It's just got to be in there. So, um, I don't know. It's it's a little weird, you know, but uh, I, I'm not sorry that that scene is in the movie. Well, and it doesn't feel as cheap, like you said, or as sleazy. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the film that Lundgren had done a few movies prior, uh, Cover Up. Yeah, Cover Up. With cover Up as well, I'm assuming. That was not a very good movie. It's super boring. And just there there is a sex scene as well in that film that just cheapens the film. And just it almost feels like something out of a, out of a, a Cinemax movie or something. It just feels extremely sleazy. So, yeah, that's definitely something that I would put. Uh, army of one it, it definitely has a notch above cover-up in that yeah. in that area as well and, you know Dolph was actually pretty cool about stuff like that he didn't do a lot of you know sex scenes in movies um i i, I that might actually be one of the only ones in army of one that he did that i can off the top of my head you know i i can't think of too many others that he did if, if any jean-claude did that as often as he as he possibly could you know jean-claude was the opposite you know he he dug that, you know, it's like he wanted to do that in his movies. And you, you could tell how eager he was to do that. Yeah. In his movies. So anyway, not, no disrespect to, to JC, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we get, I mean, literally, I mean, as, as quick as this is, I mean, the film just quicks along, clicks along and we get into that, the final fight atop these mountains. I mean, you know, the film takes place in this California desert. So it only makes sense. We had the, we had the requisite shootout in the, in the chop shop warehouse um, so it only makes sense that Lundgren and George Seagal's severance character are going to have their final battle. They're going to duke it out atop these mountains. The final fight, you know, I got to hand it to Dolph because he is always willing to take on different characters, different roles in each one of his films. I and mean, if you look at every film that he's done, he's always, the characters they play always have a little something new with them, a little, you know, a new character trait or something along those lines. And so, as much as he is trying to play just a regular, ordinary car thief, it's problematic in the fact that it is Dolph Lundgren going up against George Seagal. And I'm sorry, I don't know if you thought this as well, but Dolph would kill George Seagal with a single punch. And the fact that George Seagal is able to hold his own against, against Lundgren for as long as he does, to the point where he's even able to kick yeah. Lundgren off the mountain... I, I always I always had to roll my eyes at it. It was like, come on, if they're going to cast George Seagal in this role, then he needs to die by a quick, 
gunshot or something like that. He's not going to be able yeah, to hold his own against Dolph. Sometimes, you know, it's just uh, what are you going to do? You know, that's just something that happens. I don't know. I I know. I feel your pain there. I get it. <laughs> so yeah, but they are able to have their final fight atop this mountain, and Lundgren is getting ready to. He has a big boulder. He's able to get the upper hand, and I guess I guess if you look at it um, objectively. Maybe one of the ways that George Seagal is able to, you know, kick Lundgren's ass and get those few shots in is because Lundgren has a, a pretty bad wound on his leg. So he is not fighting at 100%. But either way, Lundgren is able to get the upper hand, and he's getting ready to smash George Seagal's face in with a boulder, and he decides at the last minute, no, he's better than that. He drops the boulder, and things just get tied up. I don't know if you if you thought this as well, but things get tied up extremely quickly and extremely neatly in this in these final few minutes atop uh, this mountain. Yeah. You know, I've always thought that um if characters climb up to some weird destination, climb up a building, climb up a ladder, climb up a mountain, it's it, uh, that's a problematic thing in a script, you know, that's where they're on set and they they realize that their their climax isn't working, so they have people climb so that they one of them can in- inevitably fall to their death. I mean, it happens all the time in movies. Um, it happens in Batman. I mean, just think about it. Why is the Joker climbing up the cathedral? Why? Why? It doesn't make sense. You know, like, so that a helicopter can pick him up yeah. from the top? Why couldn't the helicopter pick him up on the street? It doesn't make any sense. Um, these kinds of things happen all the time. In really A-plus movies, too. And you're like, just think about it. Anytime characters climb up a destination... It's because something's not right. It's not working on the script, and they're they're trying to fix it on set. So eh, that kind of thing is a is a you know it's a telltale sign that something. Yeah, well, and the fact that the other because you have Jeffrey Lewis as sheriff, and the other the other police authorities are able to get up to the mountain in this amount of time, and they are able to cuff Severance and take him take him away. That, that's another thing that I did have to kind of shake my head at slightly. It seemed like it was easy script writing shorthand. They're able to cuff Severance because they have a video of him shooting Matt Battaglia's character in the head. The, if you remember that scene back at the warehouse when he does when he does execute Matt Battaglia's deputy character, how they got that, How the, where was the camera? And that scene to where they had that on camera. I don't know if you thought that as well, but I thought, like, come on, that that's the best that they could have done. If anything, maybe they could have had Lundgren's character, he had a recorder on him or something like that as he was getting his ass kicked. So that way he could have, you know, the evidence against Severance in some kind of way. But the fact that Jeffrey Lewis just immediately cuffs him and states, we got you on camera killing the deputy. I mean, if anything, they could have had, you know, Christian Alfonso witness that, her Rita character witness that, so maybe she could have testified but it just it gets tied up a little too yeah. quickly, a little too neatly. For I, me, I understand. But... Yeah, I don't know, man. Um, I yeah, I don't know. That kind of thing happens a lot in, in movies. As we as we get to the end, I'm just curious. Uh, does Army of One get your recommendation? Not just as an action movie, Absolutely. but as like a Dolph Lundgren. Absolutely. Like I said earlier, um, this movie is kind of middle of the road. Dolph Lundgren. You know, it's it's not one of his best, and it's not anywhere near one of his worst. Um, and he's made a lot of movies. Um, and I, I think this is somewhere in the middle. Um, it's, it's distinct as you, as we've talked about, the, the locations are distinct. It's got a great score. Um, it's got some really interesting action. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really cool that, um, Dolph had some romantic chemistry with, uh, Alfonso. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. You know, it's like I kind of said, it's sort of the Fast and the Furious before there was such a thing. I'm right there with you as well. It, it's a shame that this film was just dumped here in the U.S. I don't think it would have shattered box office records or anything like that. But I think if it was given a chance in theaters, it could have done something. And it could have it could have elevated Lundgren's career a little bit higher than and where And it's, it's weird you know, because it at the same time... So, um, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme released Nowhere to Run, which was like a really strange movie for him to be, to be coming out with after Universal Soldier. So, um, you know, and that was, it showed, uh, Jean-Claude in a very sensitive way and it had very limited amounts of action. So I don't know why, you know, I mean, if, if Jean-Claude got that come out in theaters everywhere, you know, it's too bad that Army of One didn't get this same kind of treatment i didn't even think about that but yeah you're exactly right yeah that both both actors follow-up pictures are them 
in the uh, in in a sunny landscape playing regular guys. I didn't think about that, but yeah, you're you're exactly right. Um, before we go, I will uh, I will let you plug. Is there anything that you would like to plug, or anything that you're working on that you would like to talk about before? Uh, before no, we, not really. I mean, I've got go? lots of stuff going on, but um, I one thing I wanted to point out that uh, we didn't talk about is the fact that Vic Armstrong's nephew is Jesse V. Johnson, um, the director. And Jesse directed um, The Package with Dolph Lundgren. So um, it's kind of a, an interesting yes. familial tie that they have together, um, that they both got to direct Dolph Lundgren in a movie. Um, and Jesse's a great guy. I've, I've, I've you know, I've known Jesse a long time. Yeah, no, I've actually spoken with him a couple of times uh, via email. And yeah, he is, he is a super cool guy. But hey... David, thank you so, so very much for joining me. I really do appreciate it. And to everyone out there who is listening, please check out the book, The Good, The Tough, and The Deadly, as well as World Gone Wild, a survivor's guide to post-apocalyptic movies. Also an incredibly fun read. Please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews. And before we officially close this episode up, it seemed only fitting that we end with a sampling of Joel Goldsmith's memorable score. So for your listening pleasure, here is the theme to Army of One by legendary composer Joel Goldsmith. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you all next time on I Must Break, this podcast.